1: Terry Shames is an award-winning mystery writer whose Samuel Craddock series captures the flavour of small town Texas so well she's been voted one of the state's top five mystery authors. And she lives in California. Go figure. Just kidding. Hi there, I'm your host Jenny Wheeler, and today Terry talks about how she built a successful writing career and what she do differently second time around, if anything. But before we hear from Terry, just a reminder that the show notes for this binge reading episode can be found on the website, thejoysofbingereading.com. That's where you'll find a full transcript of our chat, plus links to Terry's books and website, as well as details about how to subscribe to the podcast so you don't miss future episodes. But now, here's Terry. Hello there, Terry, and welcome to the show. It is great to have you with us. Thank you, Jenny. Thanks for having me. Now, look, beginning at the beginning, was there a once upon a time moment when you decided that you just had to write fiction or your life wouldn't have really achieved what you wanted it to? And if there was a catalyst for
2: it, what was it? Well, it's a a funny one. First of all, when I was in the fifth grade—that's you're about—I don't know, eleven years old—I read a short story in a class, and I thought, "Oh, I would love to write stories like that." But even earlier than that, I remember as a child, you know, and when I was just in first or second grade, I used to, I used to love to read mysteries, and so I was always thinking, "Well, I could—I'd like to write one of these." And then in the ninth grade, I had a class where the teacher gave us an assignment and she said, write about anything. And when she got the assignments back and she said, well, I loved all your stories, but there's one story that I thought was really outstanding that you'll love. And I knew it would be mine. And it was, and I was hooked.
1: (laughs) Oh, that's gorgeous. That really is. Now, your Samuel, Samuel Craddock Mysteries, which I must say I've been enjoying. I have have consumed a number of them. Samuel is a semi-retired small-town Texas police chief, and you're now up to the seventh book in the series. And they've won um, a lot of critical acclaim, both as finalists and winners in the Macavity Mystery Awards. What made you decide to go
2: to, for a mystery series, well, a, a couple of things. I I used to love to read mysteries. Of course, I cut my teeth on on um, Nancy Drew, like everyone. But I also liked Hardy Boys. I was I was a fan of most mysteries. Um, and I just decided that would be a nice way to get started. But honestly, the first book I ever wrote was a science fiction book. It was crazy. Um, The science fiction book was fun to write, but I realized I didn't really have the kind of imagination, and I was really writing a science fiction mystery, so I realized that that was really where I wanted to go, was mysteries. And had you read science fiction before? Oh, yes. Oh, yes. I was always very, very fond of science fiction um uh uh-huh. that was um I still am I still read I think that science fiction is having a revival and if I could write with that kind of imagination I would do it in a heartbeat but I read science fiction books now and I'm just in awe of people who have that kind of imagination sure and would
1: you classify Samuel Craddock as a cozy mystery I'm sometimes a bit confused about what they actually think of as cosies.
2: You no, know, I, I have never thought of it as cosy because the subjects are very serious. And because Samuel Craddock is, he was retired when the book's first book started. But in the third book, he became the chief of police again. And he continues now to be the chief of police. So... Um, I, I think of them more as police procedurals or traditional mysteries because there are some elements, especially for some reason as I've gotten farther along in the mysteries, they're darker. Uh, and I don't think uh-huh. of posies as dark at all. I think of them as lighthearted and certainly there's an element of humour in them, but they, I don't think of them as more no.
1: Sure. I mean, this the last one that I think has been published has got quite a dark um, sub. Text there with the dog fights and things,
2: which um One reason I gave Samuel a puppy, is so that it would kind of balance that out a little bit. So in that in that sense, I suppose there is um, a coziest element to having a puppy, but that that doesn't make it a cozy.
1: No, uh, th- that probably just satisfies the people who like dogs. <laughs> Samuel is a very likeable lead character. I mean, I find that I'm really, you know, drawn to him. He's a salt-of-the-earth widower. Um, He obviously deeply loved his wife, and you you get quite a sense of that sense of loss, and and a masculine sense of loss is not something that you see that commonly in fiction. Mm -hmm. Um, But also he changes in, in his personal development as the book's progress, did you find it a bit of a mission to make him a fresh change in character, especially when
2: he is a mature man? You know, I have a very, I'm not sure exactly why this is the case, but I feel as if when I'm not writing these series that the characters in it move on, that they in and of themselves are living a life outside of me. I know that sounds bizarre, but that's the way I feel is if when I start writing, I feel like I'm checking back in on them. Um, like for example, the work I'm doing now is six months later than the previous book. And I feel as if things have changed in everyone's lives and people are moving forward as people do in real life. And so I, have never found that a, a problem at all. Um this, introducing a new love interest was a bit of a challenge because I wasn't sure exactly how to handle um, more overt interest in his part um, for this new woman, but it seems to be working okay. (laughs) Although one woman said to me, I don't want you to marry Samuel off because I want him for myself. (laughs) That's rather gorgeous. Yeah. Yeah. I know. It's wonderful. I love it.
1: I guess that's one of the um, attractions of mysteries of a series for the readers as well, that the characters are moving on and and, and they have that same sense of, oh, I wonder what Samuel's up to now.
2: Exactly, yes. Yes.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Well, one of the interesting sidelights too is his passion for art collecting, which is once again something that's a little bit different from what you might expect from that kind of small-town Texas policeman um now particularly the wolf Kahn pastels and i had to look up that artist wolf Kahn because it was obviously a very important element in the story and i see that he is a living artist and that he his work is absolutely gorgeous what i've seen of it online and i just yeah. wondered if you had a personal interest in that particular artist
2: you know not in that particular artist um My sister is an artist and she introduced me to WolfCon and I've always had a a good feeling about it, but I'm actually a real fan of the California art schools of the 60s and 70s. And of course, uh, I would love to own one of those, but they're way out of anyone's price range these days. Um, I have, I started getting an interest in art uh, oh gosh years ago when I lived in Washington DC a long time ago and I was dating a man who took me to some art shows and I was just stunned I had never um, I just never seen anything like it I loved modern art right away I loved contemporary art and I still do and when I go to a city one of the first things I do is check out the art museums and the art galleries just to see what the newest things are it's wonderful
1: yeah Yeah, it it is I I did art history at one stage in my degree and and uh I've always had I, I very modestly buy art here so so that's something that I share an
2: interest in oh well mine and I do have art and I actually have painted a few things myself and I just I enjoy doing it but it's more it's it's definitely in the realm of hobby for me just enjoying seeing colors and and seeing movement that sort of thing I really enjoy that yes but I can tell you a little story about how the art came about in the Samuel Craddock series if you'd like to know that oh yeah I'd love to okay first of all I had an uncle when I was growing up who was an artist who did some paintings he did he stopped after a while. But when I was a child, I was absolutely amazed that anyone I knew could do art. And then later on, um, it seemed that a member of our family, uh, this is a distant cousin, uh, turned out to be, to do some really fantastic art. And he came to a bad end and when I was writing the first book, I thought, you know, I would like to have, I would like to feature this young boy, but make him give him a different kind of ending, a different life than this bad end. And I thought, okay, so Samuel has to recognize that this man, that this young boy has talent. And I thought, well, how is he going to recognize that unless he knows art? And this was in my mind as I was, as I was forming the first Samuel Craddock series. So I realized that in order to understand art, he had to have some some art in his life. And I thought, what about if his wife is an art collector and he begins to be interested after that? So that's where the art element came from.
1: And it is lovely that it
2: it is a device for you to be able to also
1: measure his attachment to his wife because it's something that they shared and that he learned to enjoy from her. So that gives it an added dimension, which is is very pleasing. Yeah, yeah. You've been named one of the top five mystery te- Texas mystery authors, and yet you do live in California, but I appreciate why they did that. It's because the books are in Texas. Um, how did you come to establish the fictional town of Jarrett Creek in Texas? It is fictional, but there's a very strong... I think, authentic feel about it?
2: Well, it's based on the town where my grandparents lived when I was growing up. And it's an odd little town. People really, in really people like the town. And if you were to go there, you would say, what in the world would anyone see in this town? It's, the water tastes horrible. It's got bugs. It's muggy. It's hot. It's And when it's dry, it's dry. And the dirt is everywhere. <laughs> but there's something about it that grabs you. There's something very quintessentially Western about this town that I just have, I always have loved being there. But I think another part of it is when I was growing up, my grandfather, my father, and some of my uncles, and and also my mother were great storytellers. And so I have a memory as a child of listening to people tell stories. And it It kind of of worked itself into this feeling I have for the town. So when I started out to write a mystery series, I said, where will I set this? And I had actually written a few short stories when I was in college that got published that were set in this town. And I thought, well, why not go back to that town? And you know it. You have a feel for it, it. It's in your blood. And so that's where it came about. I decided that's what I wanted to do. And also, Texas does not necessarily have a great reputation these days, but I remember it as a place where it was more fun when I was growing up, more not quite so um, self-conscious as it is these days. And I decided I wanted to call on that sort of feeling of um, people being a little more inclusive and open. So that's where it came from.
1: And why did you not choose the real town that your grandparents live in?
2: Oh, I wanted to move things around. <laughs> For example, in the third book, um, I had some I had some places out near um, the hill country in Texas, and I didn't want him to have to drive the actual three or four hours it would take to get to the hill country. I saw I moved the town over a little. <laughs> so, so <laughs> ask me where it is. Well, it's sort of, it's... It's in the middle of Texas somewhere, but it's <laughs> it's, a, it's, a, it's fictional and you can move it around. Yeah,
1: yeah, yeah. Uh, um, that's the good thing about writing. And, and I see you've also said somewhere that um, sometimes you don't know things about your characters, just like your readers don't, that you're discovering as you go along. And the one that I particularly heard you referring to was, The new love interest that Samuel has, Ellen, you said that you just started to not like her very much. And then you discovered that she had a secret, and you had to, well, then you had to discover what that secret was. Now, that sounds like
2: quite a fascinating process. Well, I'll tell you where that came from. Okay. So, Drew Ann Love, I don't know if you know, she's a reviewer and she has a blog called A Day in the Life. And what she asked you to do is take one of your minor characters and imagine a day in their life. So that's what I did. I took Ellen and imagined a day in her life and wrote what her day would be like. And toward the end of the day, I had always felt like she was a little bit of a cipher. You know, I couldn't quite figure her out. Um, I knew that th- some things had happened to her and that she was a little reserved. I knew she was a vegetarian. Um, there, there were things about her that I knew very well, but there was, she seemed like she had a reserved part of her. And at the end of writing this little blurb, little blog for Joanne, it said, oh, she had a secret. And I thought, what in the world is that? And then when I wrote the next book, I said, well, let's find out what the secret is. <laughs> and so that's, it came
1: about that way. Oh, that's fantastic. That really is. Yeah. But moving to a more general focus, away from specific books to your wider career, you've had a range of quite fascinating jobs before you got into the writing, including working at Yellowstone Park, which I feel very jealous about, and also that you were with the CIA as a computer analyst for a number of years. Um, tell us a little bit about that journey before you began Serious Writing.
2: Well, uh, you need to you need to be much more jealous of the Yellowstone um, <laughs> uh, job than than the um, than the CIA job. <laughs> <laughs> the Yellowstone <laughs> job was enormous fun. It was when I was in college. I worked there for two summers, and it was a wonderful place to be as a young person. Um, lots of college students there. It was great fun. Um, I was, I always knew I wanted to be a writer, but of course I had to make a living. And so the CIA job was just wonderful and interesting, but I knew I would never stay on the East Coast. So then I moved to Denver for a couple of years and um, that was was another experience, but I was always restless as a kid. I wanted to be moving around. I moved and stayed in Europe for a while. And then finally, wound up on the West Coast, and I was—I always wrote, no matter what I did, no matter what kind of job I did, I always would write. Sometimes I would go out to my car in the middle of the day and during lunch and eat my lunch in the car and write a few pages, just just to keep my hand in. So finally, I decided to stop. I was in the computer field for a long time, and I decided to stop and take on a job, I just thought, okay, it seems to me that real estate agents have um, have time that they can make their own. Well, that was not true, of course, but that's what it looked like <laughs> to me. So I decided to take the real estate test. I took that. I became a realtor, which I really enjoyed. I, I'm very social and I enjoyed meeting people and, and enjoyed being in that. But meanwhile, I said, okay, if you're going to do this, you also need to really be serious about writing. So I finally sat down to write my first novel. And every night when I got done with my work, I would say, okay, you have to write, I don't remember what it was, five pages or whatever, before you can go to bed. I don't care what time it is, you have to do that. So eventually my husband said, no, I don't ever get to see you because you're either working or then when you get home, you sit in front of your typewriter and write or you know, until midnight sometimes. Why don't you quit your job and let me support you while you really try to become a writer? Well, that was a difficult thing because I'm an independent woman and I didn't really want to do it. But then eventually I said, okay, I'll try this. And so I was very fortunate to have a husband who was able to and willing to support my writing habit until it became um, successful.
1: Oh, that's, that's a lovely story. Um, did your jobs, those jobs that we referred to, did they in any way contribute to your writing, do you think? Did they
2: help in any way? I don't think that there's anything you do in life that doesn't can't be mined for your writing. The people you meet, the kinds of people you meet, the kinds of people you work with, the situations you see develop between people. And, and writing is about people. It's about people and the way people live and the way they interact. Um, and things can be set a lot of different places. And, you know, I, I think that that's, that's the answer I have for you is it doesn't really matter what you do. If you're interested in human interaction, you're going you're gonna to get things from, from what you're doing. And I never think of any specific thing that I pick up and say, oh, I remember this happened there, and I can use it in this book. It's more just a general kind of feeling that I know people and I know how people uh, are with each other. Sure,
1: sure, yeah. Look, is there one thing you've done in your writing career more than any other that's been the secret to your success. Well,
2: yes, it is, and it's something that that I is also something I wish I had done differently, and that is when I finally started taking myself seriously. Even when I wrote my first, second, third novels, I realized later that I wasn't taking it seriously. I was just writing thinking, oh, this will be good enough. This will be an interesting story. Oh, this will be fun. And I have known people now, people that, you know, I have known a few writers who were successful right out of the chute. And I realized that they took themselves seriously from the very beginning. They wanted to put out a really good product, a really good book. And I had an interesting experience recently. I had maybe six books that I wrote before I came to the Samuel Freddick series. I thought they were pretty good books. And then about a year ago, I bought a new desk and I said, okay, this is your chance to go through all these boxes on the wall, take the boxes off the wall, out of the, you know, take these manuscripts out of their boxes and see if there's anything worth keeping. I kept going, coming through these books and reading and saying, "What were you thinking? This is awful. It's 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 just it. It doesn't have any depth to it. It doesn't have any any reality to it. And I guess I could say, in the sense that I was just practicing, but I also wasn't serious. And I took a workshop with another with that was put on by two writers whom I admired." And in that workshop, one of the women said, if you want to be successful, she didn't say this to me. She gave a talk to the whole, about 20 people there. If you want to be successful, you really have to take it seriously. You have to decide that you are going to be, that you're not going to just do a good enough book. You're going to make a great book. You're going to write a book only you can write. And I had heard that phrase many times before, but for some reason, at this point, I was ready to hear it. And two months later, I sat down and I said, what is a book that only I can write? And thats it took me only two months to write the first Samuel Craddock book because it just poured out of me. It was my book. I knew immediately this was what I was supposed to be writing.
1: Wow, and so those previous works, did any of them
2: get published? I got many, almost. I would get, I I had no trouble getting agents. You know, I would get an agent and the agent would say, oh, this is wonderful, I can get it published right away. And the publishers would come back and they'd say, oh, I like the characters but I don't like the plot. I like the plot, I don't like the characters. Now I know what that means is that it, it just didn't have enough of whatever that magic element is that makes a book really stand out from the crowd. Um, In all of the books I wrote, when I went back and looked at the different ones that were possible, you know, that I had tried before, there was maybe one that I thought, well, this is not a bad idea and it's not a bad book. I could maybe revive this after a while, but I haven't because you know i have constantly new ideas so i don't feel any need to go back
1: yeah yeah tell me is there a mystery in your own life that would make a good plot
2: line you know this goes back to what you asked about 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 what i what i was about what i got from work and that is i just think that every human being is a mystery everybody's lives have some mystery to them that no one can really know. We're all unknowable people at, at core. You know, we have thoughts and dreams and fears that even our cl- most close people don't really necessarily know. And so in that sense, yes. But in, in the sense of, is there a mystery? I have mined a lot of mysteries in my family, a lot of little funny incidents and weird things like that but in my own life I feel like I'm I'm just like everyone you know and I'm when I start to write these mysteries I'm interested in whatever character I'm dealing with I want to know what's up with them you know and I don't necessarily feel that it comes directly from me so no there's no particular mystery in my life I'm just as mysterious as everyone else and and just as open as everyone else. (laughs) (laughs) Now, if you were going to uh,
1: suggest a a kind of magical mystery literary tour for your readers, if they wanted to kind of get in touch with the Texas that Samuel lives in, where would you suggest that they go to soak up that Texan atmosphere, the small town Texan atmosphere perhaps?
2: You know the this t- the books are set in small town in a small town in mid mid Texas. You know Texas is really big, and every part of Texas, the East Texas. I have I've just been watching Happen Leonard. I'm, I'm a real fan of Joe Lansdale's books. They're set in East Texas, and they could be set in another country entirely from the country I write about. There are similarities. But they, but each of them has its own kind of feel, like there are pine trees in his part of Texas. And there are no pine trees in my part of Texas. Mine is post oak. You go to the Gulf Coast area and you get uh, an entirely different feel. So I would say you have to go to some of the small towns in central Texas, like there's uh, LaGrange and Brenham and Somerville and all of those towns around the Caldwell, uh, any of those small towns you could go into and you would get that feeling of this particular time. I'll tell you the, the thing about that part of Texas, it always fascinated me. It is a place, it's an area where when times are bad, it, you know, like when the economy is really poor, it goes to the bottom right away. When the economy is great, it pulls itself gradually up and gets better, but the second the economy turns, bam, it's gone again. It's a, it's a basically not very um, financially successful area of the country. It's it has a it has a kind of um, I, I don't know weary financial feeling to it. I but, but uh, always is fascinating. Yeah. Is it a place that, quotes, tourists would go to? Oh, okay. So I think this is kind of a – no, it isn't. But I can tell you this. When I started writing about this uh, – about Ellen who came to town to, to start an art uh, – she, she comes into town and decides to open an art gallery and a little art workshop. And I wrote this thinking, oh, how funny it would be in this little town for this to happen because the town basically has one, maybe one and a half blocks of Main Street. Well, after the book was written and sent off to my editor, I said to my sister, why, who lives in Texas, why don't we go back to Somerville and kind of just drive around and you know, so I can review my thoughts about it. We're driving down Main Street and there is an art gallery and a workshop. We immediately parked. I ran inside. I said, where did this come from? She said, oh, we just opened just a very short time ago. <laughs> I was like, "How did how did I even know this? Well, now every year, it turns out that several small towns have these little art galleries now, and they actually have an art tour where you can drive People come to, to this little area to drive from place to place and look at the art, which I just find fascinating.
1: That's gorgeous. We'll have to put a um, a, a link to the to that show in the show notes for the episode. It sounds great.
2: Yeah. It's very interesting. Very yeah. Interesting it's not something you would think would happen, and yet there it is.
1: Yeah. Look, turning to ter- Terry as reader, you know, this is called – The Joys of Binge Reading, and it's partly modelled on the idea of people like to binge watch on Netflix, and now they've got into this idea of binge reading as well. You sound like you've been a very passionate reader in the past, who are the people that you most like to just basically consume as your fellow writers?
2: Oh, I'm just I'm such a passionate reader, but I'll tell you one quick story about my own writing and that is this morning. This very morning I went to my exercise class and a woman ran up to me and she said and 2 weeks ago she said, "Oh, I'm reading your first book." I said, "That's nice." She said this morning, "I'm on number 4 now." I <laughs> think that was <laughs> so look, here are some, here are the people that I read immediately. I Timothy Halliman, the second one of his books come out, I just immediately snap it up. Um, Attica Locke, she isn't prolific. I think she's only written four novels now, but every one of them is top notch. Um Let's see, Robert Craze, I always read Robert Craze. It's interesting, I don't really like Cozy's very much, but I read Reese Bowen's um, Lady Georgie series and then it comes out because they're so funny. They are wonderfully funny. Um, Deborah Crombie, she has a wonderful series set in England. She's not English, she's from Dallas, Texas. And yet she writes this wonderful series that you just feel like you're right in the heart of England. Joe Clifford, who has not written many books, but he's, but I love his, he has such a sense of desolation in his novels. It's really beautiful reading. Um, And I have to say that I I am so pleased with my editor at 7th Street Books. The books that he chooses to publish are just top-notch. I can pick up any author from 7th Street Books. And I actually ran into a bookstore uh, bookseller who said, I'm always thrilled when a new 7th Street book comes out because the authors there are just wonderful. And, and you get um, you get James Siskin. You get um, um, Mark Pryor. Um, let's see. I'm trying to think of us. Uh, oh, goodness, I can't think of his name. Robin Yoakum. Um, there, any, any of those books are wonderful. Uh, Stephanie, Stephanie, um, I can't think of the last name. Um, anyway, I'll go on. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Anyway. uh, Yeah. Lots of good books.
1: (laughs) And are most of those, um, either mysteries or thrillers? Oh, apart from Reese Bowen, perhaps.
2: Um, well, I would say, okay, the Timothy Hellenand books are mysteries that uh, he has a series set in um, Bangkok and another one set in Los Angeles. And the Los Angeles one features a thief who solves crimes. Um, The one in Bangkok is a a journalist who solves crimes. I don't know what you call those. They're not exactly thrillers. Um,
1: Yeah, but they are crime- mysteries of yeah
2: yeah yeah Yeah, yeah. they're crime mysteries a lot of them like for example robert craze has a private detective uh deborah crombie has a police detective
1: yeah i I share your love of robert craze i I think he's fantastic
2: oh his books are just wonderful and he's also a nice man
1: (laughs) (laughs) oh well that's great terry thank you people have some really good leads on who to look up that's fantastic Look, at this stage in your career, if you were doing it all over again, what, if anything,
2: would you change? Oh, well, um, I think I alluded to this a little bit earlier, that I would take myself more seriously. And and let, I can be more specific about that. When I first started, I opened, you know, I, I wrote my first book. I opened um, Publishers Weekly, um, the, the um about that had all the stuff about agents and I just chose an agent at random and sent the thing off and they took it which was nice but I knew nothing about how the process worked I didn't know that I should be checking in with them I didn't know what I should expect from an agent I did not know whether this was a good agent by pure luck he was a very reputable agent he was not able to sell my book but he was very serious and reputable um, then I decided to move on, but I I kept just doing this kind of flinging things at the wall and hope that they hope that they stuck. And nowadays, what I would do is I would research it. I would read all the articles in front of the publishers weekly and say, you know, or or in on, or online and say, um, what is it I need to know to make a success here? What does my what elements do my books have to have? How. Uh, how can I ma- be professional here? Uh, and, and it took me a long time to get to that. And I think I could have shortcut it. I think of a um, writing friend of mine, Lisa Brackman, who writes a magnificent book. And her first book just came out of the chute just perfect. It was a wonderful book. Every book she's... And now that I know her personally, I know that she is very serious about getting everything Right. And she's very serious about about the books she publishes, and I think that's true of a lot of a lot of people who are very successful. Is they have to be, they really know not just the creative side but the business side of writing.
1: Yes, yeah. So, what is next for Terry as writer? Have you got new projects under development?
2: Well, I am about sixty thousand words into my next. Samuel Craddock, which means it's about two-thirds, a little little more than two-thirds done. Um, And I'm doing that thing where I know what the end is and now I have to figure out ways to get it to the end. (laughs) It (laughs) drives me crazy at this point of every book. And uh, it was interesting. I was very happy to uh, take a workshop from uh, Jeffrey Deaver recently and he talked about the panic that writers go through at some stage in their writing not knowing whether they don't want to disappoint their readers they want the book to be good enough and yet it seems like a flop my last book I hate it I really hated it by the time I was done with it and yet people seem to really like it and now I look back on it and think well yes yeah, it's okay it's a pretty good book but but there comes a point when you just feel like you don't even know what the book is yeah yeah. Besides that, I'm also working on um, a book that has been plaguing me for quite a while now. And I'm, you know, I'm just starting to sort of outline it and figure out what it is. I'm not even sure what it would be classified as either, either a thriller or a, I don't think it's psychological suspense, but maybe that's what it is. I, I don't know. It's a woman in jeopardy sort of thing. Um a la somebody like Katrina Pearson, uh, who, who writes just bang up um, psychological suspense novels. Um, and then I have another one that I've written that I was not pleased with that I have to kind of figure out whether it's worth dealing with and an adventure story that I'm kind of rewriting. So yeah, I'm busy. I have a lot of things.
1: I love writing. <laughs> oh, that's really great. Well, look, we're coming to the end of our time, sadly. Where can readers find you online?
2: Well, they can find me on um, on my website, terryshamescott.com or on Facebook. I have a Facebook page and a personal page and also an author page. And I also blog with Seven Criminal Minds. So you can find me at those places. I don't do a lot of Twitter. Um, and I am just now thinking that it's time for me to get into some of the uh, visual um, media, but we'll see Pinterest and, um, maybe not Snapchat, but the other one that I can't think of the name of Instagram, Instagram, exactly. I've never, uh, that's never really appealed to me, but people seem to really like it. So, um, I'm thinking about getting into that as well, but, but mainly it's the three right now, the, the website, the Facebook page, or the seven criminal minds blog.
1: Oh, that's great. Yes. Pinterest would be interesting. I think, you know, there'd be quite a lot of stuff that you could put up that, that would be relevant to, to both the books and be interesting for people. So, yeah. Exactly, yes. Okay, Terry. well, look, thank you so much. All the very best with your writing. Jenny, thank you. This was wonderful. Hey, just before you go, have you got any thoughts about how many there might end up being in the Samuel Craddock series? Have any Any thoughts of that? Or will you just go on until you feel... You don't want to do it anymore in that
2: particular line. Well, I'm working on number eight right now, and I have ideas for three more. And every time I think, well, I don't know whether I have any more, then I think, oh, wait a minute, I know what. And I'm really, I'm sort of excited about the next one. I think it'll be fun. It's just a little germ of an idea. And, um, yeah, and then there's a thing. Every year in the town where uh, that Jarrett Creek is based on, uh, there is a motorcycle rally, and I thought, oh, that would be a wonderful place to have a cry. Yeah. So, so, yeah, I've got two more, three more that I could uh, I could work up right now. So we'll see. I'm I'm not ready to be done with it. Oh, that's fantastic. Well, look, thank you so
1: much and all the very best. Thank you. Bye. Bye.
0: Thanks for listening to the Joys of Binge Reading podcast. You can find all the details and links for this episode at www.thejoysofbingereading.com. We'd love to hear your comments and suggestions for who you'd like us to interview next. And if you enjoyed the show, take a moment to subscribe on iTunes or a similar provider so you won't miss out on future guests. Thanks for joining us and happy reading.
1: The Joys of Binge Reading podcast is put together with fantastic technical help from Dan Cotton and Abe Raffles. Dan is an experienced sound and video engineer who's ready and available to help you with your next project. Seek him out at dcaudioservices at gmail.com. That's D for Daniel, C for Charlie, audioservices at gmail.com, or check our show notes. He's fast, he takes pride in getting it right, and he's great to work with. Our voiceovers are done by abe raffles another gem of sound and screen abe has 20 years of experience on both sides of the camera slash microphone as a cameraman director and also as a voice artist and tv presenter i think you'd agree that his voice is both light-hearted and warm he is super easy to work with no matter what the job you'll find him at abe, A-B-E, at pointandshoot.co.nz. As I say, the full details in the show notes on the website. That's it for now. Thanks for listening. Hopefully see you next week. Bye.